3: Trigger Warning. This podcast involves discussions of child sexual abuse and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. In 1958, Stanley Kubrick was a director on the rise, but had yet to release a big hit. Before the age of 30, he had already directed four movies, the most recent of which was a war movie called Paths of Glory and starred Pretty Big star Kirk Douglas. This was also his first collaboration with producer James Harris. But Kubrick wasn't the legend we know him as today yet. We know him now as the director of 2001, A Space Odyssey, or The Shining, or Dr. Strangelove, or Clockwork Orange. And it wouldn't be until 1960 that he released his first major hit, Spartacus. Kubrick and Harris didn't quite have the major cred yet, but they did have good reputations in Hollywood. And most importantly, they had $150,000 in 1958 money to pay for the rights to adapt Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. Convincing Nabokov that Lolita should be adapted to the screen wasn't much of a challenge. Nabokov had been a movie buff for years, with a reputation for bursting out laughing extremely loudly in movie theaters, and he'd even written his 1932 Russian language novel Laughter in the Dark with film adaptation in mind. What was not gonna be so easy was convincing Nabokov that he should be the one to write the script. The first draft of the Lolita screenplay was written by Calder Willingham, a very British name for someone who was American. He was a Kubrick collaborator who had co-written Paths of Glory and would go on to write drafts of Spartacus and The Graduate. Now, all we know about this draft now is that Kubrick didn't like it. And so Kubrick and Harris were essentially begging Nabokov to adapt the work himself by 1959. Here's a telegraph from Kubrick to Nabokov.
4: Book a masterpiece, and should be followed even if Legion & Code disapprove. Stop. Still believe you are the only one for the screenplay. Stop. If financial details can be agreed, would you be available?
3: And here's Nabokov's reaction, written in the foreword of the published screenplay.
4: The idea of tampering with my own novel causes me only revulsion.
3: But there were some butterflies worth catching in the region, so the Nabokovs packed their bags for Beverly Hills to meet with Stanley Kubrick. It did not go well. In person, Kubrick was far more conscious of skirting the production code that held content coming out of Hollywood in a vice grip from the early 1930s until the late 1960s. Here's how Nabokov describes that meeting.
4: I was told that in order to appease the censor, a later scene should contain some putic hint to the effect that Humbert had been secretly married to Lolita all along.
3: Nabokov says, no way, and he turns the gig down. And at this time, Nabokov wasn't even totally comfortable with a young actress playing Lolita at all and was actively trying to think of ways around it. But while he was back in Europe this summer, he couldn't stop thinking about how he would do the adaptation. Ideas continued to pop up, and so when his agent came back with an offer from Kubrick and Harris for $40,000 to write the script, Nabokov agreed. On March 1st, 1960, Kubrick and Nabokov met again, and they had a debate of what Nabokov would concede to the Hollywood Code and what absolutely needed to stay. On March 9th, Nabokov began to meet with prospective Lolitas. And I am going to be calling her Lolita in this episode because that is the name she is referred to as for the entire movie. But the casting of Lolita was a decision that had caused a lot of talk, and over 800 young actors had auditioned for the part. The first choice had been child star Haley Mills, who was and is most famous for her Disney roles in movies like Pollyanna and The Parent Trap, not the Lindsay Lohan one. Much later in her career, Mills had this to say of Lolita. I wanted to do it. I'd read the book, but didn't understand the implications of it. My parents were put under quite a bit of pressure to let me do it. They were offered a Renoir. Still under contract at Disney, it wasn't a huge surprise that this did not end up happening. So Nabokov doesn't meet Haley Mills on March 9th. Instead, he meets the 17-year-old Tuesday Weld, who was a pretty interesting choice for this part. Weld had been the main source of her family's income since she was a toddler after her father suddenly died. She had suffered a nervous breakdown by the age of 9. She, like Lolita, had been a victim of sexual abuse as a child beginning at 11, and had been linked to several men far older than her in her early teen years, and had it framed as consensual, including a 44 year old Frank Sinatra when she was 14. This is your annual reminder that Frank Sinatra fucking sucks. Nabokov, however, did not think that Tuesday was the right fit, saying this.
4: A graceful ingenue, but not my idea of Lolita.
3: Later in life, Tuesday Weld agreed and said this. I didn't have to play Lolita. I was Lolita. Meanwhile, a lot of actors are chomping at the bit to play European child sex abuser Humbert Humbert. We're talking Laurence Olivier, David Niven, Marlon Brando, but that part ends up going to James Mason, who fits Nabokov's description of Humbert from the book pretty well, although he is in his 50s and the Humbert of the book is 37. And by September 1960, Nabokov had written a six-hour, sprawling version of the script that Kubrick said was unfilmable, and then a second draft that would eventually be published that Nabokov was considerably less enthusiastic about. The part of Lolita still hadn't been cast, and on September 29th, Nabokov and Kubrick meet for the last time. It's here that Nabokov first sees photos of an unknown actor named Sue Lyon, and he has this to say.
4: Sue Leon was a demure nymphette of 14 or so who, said Kubrick, could easily be made to look younger and grubbier for the part of Lolita, for which he had already signed her up. On the whole, I felt rather pleased with the way things had worked out.
3: Yes, he was supposed to have said Sue Lion there, not Sue Leon, but Robert is really busy and I didn't want to ask him to do it again. And it's, you know, not the least funny mistake I've ever heard. It is Sue Lion. Thank you, Robert Evans. The movie was released in June 1962 and led with this tagline
5: How did they ever make a movie of Lolita?
3: And that's actually a pretty easy question to answer. How did they ever make a movie of Lolita? They didn't. And Stanley Kubrick would never make a movie of even a whiff of a female protagonist ever again. This is Lolita Podcast. Welcome back to Lolita Podcast. My name is Jamie Loftus, and today we are talking about the first attempt, and I cannot stress the word attempt enough, to adapt Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita to the big screen. Now, when I say they didn't make a movie of Lolita, Here's what I mean in this case. Kubrick's movie doesn't just scale back the abuse towards Lolita and style her to appear much older than the 12 year old of the book or even the 14 year old of the movie. This movie is played as comedy for the most part, with more focus on the inflated role of Claire Quilty and Humbert Humbert trying to deceive everyday people from the reality of who and what they really are. What happens to Lolita is not made clear is abuse, and more often than not, her behavior is framed as inviting Humbert's attention. The fact that a 14 year old cannot consent to an adult is a non-issue and the truth of it is ignored entirely. As far as 1962 is concerned, this is a slightly problematic love story. And I know I'm coming down hard on it right at the beginning, but particularly after speaking with psychologists who specialize in treating survivors of child abuse, these changes do matter. We'll be speaking with her at length next week, but I wanted to share this part of my interview with author of Reading Lolita to Understand Child Sexual Abuse, Lucia Williams.
2: So he shows it with through literary, you know, it, in a subtle way, but he shows her crying, he shows how upset she is, that she's isolated, that, you know, he, she cannot play with her friends, she cannot go to school with her friends. So he shows that. But one of the issues that perhaps people get confused, and I've seen very young modern writers talking about this, saying, oh, she's the one who seduced him. She wasn't even a virgin. Well, why is, first of all, is she really a virgin or not? She describes to him that when she was at camp, she made sex for the first time, right? But if she did, uh, it was with a pal. It was somebody with her own age. And that, you know, a 12-year-old kid having sex with a 13-year-old kid, that's called uh, an introduction to sex, which might or not be violent. That's going to depend, right? But it might be okay. Uh, but according to him, he describes it in a way to say, you know, he has to defend himself. He considers himself, oh, poets never kill. I'm a poet. I could never, ever hurt her. So he. It's, it's to his interest that she was already very precocious sexually.
3: Thanks so much to Lucia, and we'll be talking to her again soon. And virtually all of the misconceptions she's describing are represented to some degree in this movie. Have the artistic merit argument all you want. But the way Kubrick trivializes abuse here is undeniable. And he's not doing this alone, and we're going to have a talk about Nabokov's adaptation choices for his own work that I found pretty surprising. But this movie does stand out among other adaptations for a couple of reasons. It's the only one that Nabokov himself was involved in writing, it sets many of the precedents that haunt future adaptations, and maybe more than anything else, it establishes a very particular aesthetic. Because seriously, when you picture Lolita, what are you picturing? Yours might be different, but the most common answer is a teenage girl looking over a pair of heart-shaped sunglasses seductively at the viewer. Sometimes she's got a lollipop, other times she doesn't. This is an image pulled directly from the 1962 movie poster, and it's possibly the most enduring and iconic image associated with Lolita the cultural figure. It's an image that's referenced in pop culture up until today, if you count Lana Del Rey's music as relevant, it still has an impact on fashion and music and movies that followed it. And guess what? That shot does not appear in the movie at all. Lolita first appears in the movie looking at Humbert, granted in a way that is deeply sexualized that we'll talk about, but it's over regular sunglasses, the dark glasses that Nabokov describes in his book, No lollipops, no heart shapes, and yet this is the strongest image we have of anything. So today we're going to talk about how the 1962 Lolita movie got made, what Nabokov's experience was working on it, and how the image of Lolita, the cultural product, was cultivated through an unknown actor named Sue Lyons' excellent performance, as well as some insight into how her treatment on the set of Lolita and the media after affected her life moving forward. We're going to talk Kubrick with a Kubrick scholar who has some insight on how Kubrick and James Harris approached the story and began a long line of misinterpretations of Lolita that get us all the way up to Lana Del Rey singing, Hey Lolita, Hey. And that's not to mention details of Sue Lyon's experiences on the production that have only come to light in the public weeks before I'm recording this. Sarah Weinman, who I will be speaking to next week as well, has written about Lolita extensively and is the author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner and the Novel That Scandalized the World. In October 2020, she reported for Airmail that producer James Harris had taken Sue Lyon's virginity, either during the production when she was 14 or shortly after on the subsequent press tour, depending on who you ask in Lyon's life. We can't ask Lyon herself because she passed away in late 2019 but we're going to be dedicating a future episode to the experiences of the girls and women who have played the part of Lolita. But I did want to include this passage from her piece here. Quote, A July 14th, 1962 column by Dorothy Kilgallen carried the headline, Lolita Virus Catching for Sue Lyon? The item reads, quote, within a quote, oh no, quote, Sue Lyon, the pretty star of Lolita, has bowled over her producer, James B. Harris— her age is 16, according to her studio, and he's an old man of 33. She prefers the company of mature men, and James may be her cup of tea when she's a little older and decides it's proper to court her." Unquote. Sue Lyon later had this to say when the 1990s adaptation directed by Adrian Lyne, was first announced in 1996. Quote, My destruction as a person dates from that movie. Lolita exposed me to temptations no girl of that age should undergo. I defy any pretty girl who is rocketed to stardom at 14 in a sex nymphette role to stay on a level path thereafter. We will pick up on Lion's experiences later in the series. And while this movie has a generally negative legacy, Nabokov ends up getting an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay which is ironic given how next to nothing of his scripts actually appeared on screen. Here's what he said in the foreword to the published screenplay.
4: When adapting Lolita to the speaking screen, Kubrick saw my novel in one way, I saw it in another, that's all. Nor can one deny that infinite fidelity may be an author's ideal, but can prove a producer's ruin. My first reaction to the picture was a mixture of aggravation, regret, and reluctant pleasure.
3: So when we talk about the script to the 62 Lolita, the one we're referring to is Kubrick's and Harris's. Kubrick fans don't discuss Lolita that much when they talk about his work because it's honestly far from his best. But I find the excuse made for why it's not his best to be pretty telling. And it's this, something he said years later.
4: Had I realized how severe the censorship limitations were going to be, I probably wouldn't have made the film.
3: So you guys, he like would have made an amazing movie that was respectful to its central character, but like, he couldn't. And he's right in saying his Lolita doesn't tackle any of the anti-child sex abuse themes of the book, and part of that can be attributed to the production code still active. But... No one had a gun to Kubrick and Harris's head saying their adaptation had to be comedy heavy. No one said let's let Peter Sellers improvise in a movie about a pedophile for minutes at a time about absolutely nothing. And certainly no one forced them to lay the foundation for Lolita's sexualized image through both the script and the language of the camera. So the argument I'm going to lay out here is that director Kubrick and producer Harris scapegoating the production code as troubling and draconian as it absolutely was, is a way of dodging a lot of accountability about their own bad choices. And I say this for many reasons that we'll discuss later in the episode, but for starters, Kubrick, like every other man who has attempted to adapt Lolita, and it has been all men, saw the source material as a love story. Here's a clip from an interview he did with Terry Southern at Esquire at the time of the movie's release.
4: It's certainly one of the great love stories, isn't it? I think Lionel Trilling's piece in Encounter is very much to the point when he speaks of it as the first great love story of the 20th century.
3: Unless we forget the tone of that Lionel Trilling piece he's referring to from the magazine Encounter from 1958. Here's a quote. quote we naturally incline to be lenient towards a rapist who eventually feels a deathless devotion to his victim. Unquote. I mean, if you don't laugh, you're just going to cry. So the issues here extend past the production code. The director and arguably co-writer of the movie didn't get what the story was about. But all right, Kubrick, I'll play ball. What kind of Hollywood landscape was Lolita released into? Because to understand the 4D blame game being played here and why it's taken until October 2020 for the abuse of power associated with this production to come to light, we do need some context. What that code was, how it was connected to Hollywood, and how it was connected to the sexualization of young girls in 1962. Buckle up.
1: This is it. Your moment.
5: a perfect home, sweet home.
3: The Hayes Production Code of 1930 was named for ex-Republican politician and ex-Postmaster General William H. Hayes, who was appointed the first president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association. And this code is, well, it's a lot. Here are some excerpts from the original text read by my dear friend, Grace Thomas.
6: Though regarding motion pictures primarily as entertainment without any explicit purpose of teaching or propaganda, producers know that the motion picture within its own field of entertainment may be directly responsible for spiritual or moral progress, for higher types of social life, and for much correct thinking. The sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. Sex perversion, or any inference to it, is forbidden. Children's sex organs are never to be exposed. Miscegenation, sex relationships between the white and black races, is forbidden. A book describes, a film vividly presents, one presents on a cold page, the other by apparently living people.
3: So all of that, with the exception of protecting children from being exploited on film... Although, as we will discuss, this did not protect them from their own bosses and co-stars behind the scenes. So again, really normal stuff. It goes without saying... Racist, sexist, homophobic, really every bad thing you can be is what this code is. And there is no doubt that this code had a huge effect in suppressing progress in popular art. I mean, hell, next to the amount of pushback writers and directors got while the code was in place, Nabokov's concerns about being simply taken to court over the Lolita manuscript in the publishing industry seems kind of like a cakewalk. Back in the early days of the production code in the 1930s, the concept of Hollywood was full of powerful men exerting pretty extreme control both financially and sometimes sexually over young girls in the name of art, and more significantly, profit. And there's some overlap between the literary and film worlds here. We talked in the last episode about how much of Nabokov's female characters across his fiction suffer extensively while their stories are being narrated by men. Kind of exactly what's going on in Hollywood, too, thanks mainly to, as in literature and in life, men exerting an extreme amount of creative control, particularly over their female and child leads. So over on the director side, there are notoriously antagonistic and abusive directors like D.W. Griffith, Alfred Hitchcock, Howard Hughes, the list goes on. And on the other side, we have draconian, profiteering producers with stars under contract that squeeze every last drop of labor out of actors like Louis B. Mayer, Jack Warner, David O. Selznick. The list goes on there too. And the long-term issues that these creative heads had on their stars, particularly younger ones, really can't be overstated. One needs to look no further than examples like the long-term abuse and exploitation of child stars like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, or the endless promotional tours and photos that starlets were required to do in order to promote men's movies using their bodies, like Jane Russell, like Marilyn Monroe. And there are a number of wonderful books, podcasts, documentaries that cover this time in Hollywood in gruesome and fascinating detail, and I'll include them in the footnotes of this episode particular recommendations are Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This and Be Kind Rewind on YouTube. So Hollywood is not an industry known for being kind to really anybody except rich white men and had no vested interest, especially at this time, in changing that. But this exploitation wasn't limited to the profiteers alone. It extended to the consumers to an extent. When child stars first came into the mainstream, they were immediately made to act more like adults. And for young girls, this automatically led to being sexualized from a very early age. And this is ridiculous. A writer named Graham Greene, who you might remember from the last episode, is the English critic who would later be the first to give Lolita the book its first big critical break back in 1955, says this about Shirley Temple's movie from 1937 called Wee Willie Winkie. He says that she has, quote, a certain adroit coquetry which appealed to middle-aged men, unquote. Okay, it does get worse from here. I didn't even feel right having a friend voice this because it's so gross, so I am, I'm doing it myself. Trigger warning, Graham Greene continues, quote, In Captain January, she wore trousers with the mature suggestiveness of Dietrich, her neat and well-developed rump twisted in the tap dance. Her naked eyes had a sidelong, searching coquetry. Now, in wee Willie Winky, wearing short kilts, she is completely totsy. Watch the way she measures a man with agile studio eyes, with dimpled depravity, using her well-shaped and desirable little body. Unquote. Jesus Christ! So. 20th Century Fox files a libel lawsuit and bankrupts the magazine these words were published in, but Graham Greene goes on as a writer and hails the novel Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov as a great work in 1955. And yes, the distance between 1937 and 1955 isn't insignificant, but... Knowing Graham Greene's attitudes in 1937 about young girls at age 33, and then his opinions on Lolita in 1955, it's worth saying, were these 1955 quotes said with a full understanding that the book Lolita is not taking Humbert's side? And this is a somewhat extreme example of how child stars were talked about at this time, but there is no doubt that the child stars of the 1930s were asked to be adults in many ways, and were sometimes physically and sexually abused by their employers. Again, Judy Garland's experience as a girl with Louis B. Mayer is a tragic and clear example of this. In the 1940s, this same wave of child stars became preteens and teenagers, and the industry evolved to make new stories and develop new tropes for them. Elizabeth Taylor transitions from child roles to young ingenue in love. Judy Garland's body continues to be regulated as her plot lines change. Within the same couple of years, she's asked to sing You Made Me Love You at age 14 to Clark Gable. And just a few years later, her breasts are taped down to play Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz to appear more childlike. And this isn't even to mention the handful of high-profile child sex abuse cases surrounding stars of early Hollywood, who are still held in extremely high regard today. Consider Charlie Chaplin, one of Hollywood's biggest stars ever, who made a number of slapstick comedies that involved very young girls, and not for no reason. In the biography, Tramp, written by Joyce Milton in 1996, there's an anecdote about Chaplin becoming fixated on a 15-year-old named Hetty Kelly, who turned him down when propositioned. Chaplin remarked on seeing her a year later that he, quote, was disappointed to notice that she had developed breasts, which he did not find attractive, unquote. There's another example Chaplin fixated on a 12-year-old named Maybel Fournier around this time and said this.
1: I have always been in love with young girls. Not in an amorous way. I just loved to caress and fondle Maybelle, Not passionately. Just to have her in my arms
3: really a masterclass in absolute bullshit. And then there was Mildred Harris, who met Chaplin at age 14 and was pregnant by him at 16. Just from being in his arms, I'm sure. They got married and divorced pretty quickly. Then again, Lolita Gray was 15 when 35-year-old Chaplin got her pregnant and married her. This was disturbing to both Lolita and and her mother, who kept careful records of Chaplin's behavior under the assumption that they would have to go to court over it someday. When that divorce happened, the media finally reported on Chaplin's repeated history of child molestation, but it didn't damage his reputation enough to end his career. I mean, hell, it barely affects how we view him now, if people know about this at all. Which honestly, I didn't. And yes, that's Lilita, not Lolita. But it's a near certainty that Nabokov was aware of this scandal and may have had the name in the back of his head when he began writing. Then there's Errol Flynn, who is accused of statutory rape by two teenagers, Peggy Satterley and Betty Hansen in 1942. And Flynn is actually brought to a very public trial for 21 days. He is, as rapists often are, acquitted and returns to stardom. And he is accused again at the end of the 1940s by a different 15-year-old girl. He's acquitted again. All evidence proved that he knew the girls were underage, and had in fact glorified it, calling them things like jailbait and San Quentin quail. The reason he isn't found guilty appears to be that his victims may not have been virgins. And again, there is that glimmer of Lolita the book. Humbert assuages his obvious guilt after raping Lolita for the first time by reminding himself that she's had sex before, as if that matters. And that's not even to mention how the abuse of child performers, women, and people of color would continue into today. In the 1940s and 1950s, the Hollywood blacklist and the production code worked seamlessly together under McCarthyism to prevent progress in what could be shown on screen. The majority of Hollywood got on board with persecuting any writer or director that had so much as indicated a mild interest in the idea of communism, and this caused a number of writers to be fully blacklisted and sent the message to those that were not blacklisted that the envelope was not to be pushed. Interestingly enough, the first of the Hollywood 10 blacklisted, Dalton Trumbo, would only come back into prominence under his own name when Kirk Douglas publicly and proudly recognized him as the credited writer of Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus in 1960. By the time Lolita is first published in 1955, the Hollywood landscape has shifted yet again. The code is still in place, But now, Marilyn Monroe is the world's biggest star, and she is most frequently cast as a very childish character within a very adult body. In the book, Chasing Lolita, which I can't recommend enough, writer Graham Vickers makes this argument about Monroe, quote, had the 1950s version of the damaged little Victorian girl syndrome and projected it with an impersonation of mental vacuity, physical vulnerability, and a constant need for a father figure to look after her, unquote. Within Monroe, the child woman stereotype was solidified as an image. On the other end of that was Andre Hepburn, as well as the increasing popularity of rock and roll. Film is becoming edgier and sexier, and I sound like a freshman film professor, but it's true. In 1958, there's a movie called Bonjour Tristesse by Otto Preminger, which is based on a French novel, where a young Jean Seberg plays a teenager with a fixation on her bachelor dad's sex life. Writers and directors like Tennessee Williams and Elia Kazan enter the mainstream, which continue to push the boundaries even further. And this is a time in Hollywood that can be viewed a number of ways. On one hand, teenagers' sex lives are something that hadn't really been acknowledged in mainstream cinema at this point, even with the bizarre Olympian loopholes that Hollywood movies of this time needed to find in order to be up to code. Because of course teenagers were exploring their sexuality, and it's good that popular art was recognizing that that's worth representing on screen. The inverse of that is, who are the people in charge of putting it on screen, and who is profiting the most? The 1950s bring us movies like Baby Doll, a 1956 movie starring actress Carol Baker that's adapted from a Tennessee Williams comic play, 27 Wagons Full of Cotton. The movie concerns a failed cotton gin owner named Archie Lee Megan, whose 19 year old wife, Baby Doll Megan, and yes, that's what she's called, will not have sex with Archie until she turns 20, although she seems pretty open to doing so with another character called Silva. The way the movie was marketed played to the sexualized child persona Marilyn Monroe had made famous before, but turned it up to an 11. Baker is seen in press stills in a short nightie, sucking her thumb, and sleeping in a broken down child's crib. And the backlash to this was so intense that Warner Brothers actually pulled the movie from a national release shortly before the movie came out. So only a year after Lolita, the novel, is first released in France, and three years before it reaches shelves in the US, Carol Baker as Baby Doll bears a striking resemblance to how Sue Lyon will later appear as Lolita in 1962. At the time of Baby Doll's release, it was considered the dirtiest American made motion picture ever, dot 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 legally exhibited. According to Time Magazine, like Lolita's status as a banned book, only increasing its popularity, so it was for Baker. For Baby Doll, she is eventually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance, a Golden Globe for Best Actress, and won a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer, which she ended up sharing with Jane Mansfield and Natalie Wood. But Baker's career never gets too much higher than Baby Doll. She went on to appear in a number of other films and turned in some really great performances, but the shadow cast by her role in Baby Doll, one that deeply sexualized and stressed her in terms of the type of media attention it drew, proved to be too intense to escape from under, no matter how talented she really was. That is to say, she did incredible work in classic films for years after, survived being blackballed by Hollywood over being over-publicized, and made a name for herself in independent film and publishing. But even as of last year, Baby Doll is what leads her headlines. Baker is still alive today and has written four books, both her autobiography and some fiction, and is an absolutely fascinating person. I highly recommend her work. And in a twist that could only happen in Lolita, Carol Baker, of baby doll, later has a daughter, who is also an actor, and Blanche Baker goes on to star as Lolita in a failed Broadway adaptation by Edward Albee in 1981. Seriously. More on that in a future episode. To borrow an example from the Lolita saga, you can be Vladimir Nabokov and write an anti-child sex abuse book And one of the people who glorifies what you're condemning, Graham Greene, can be the same person that makes your book famous. It doesn't change anything about the content, but it does change the way it's framed to the general public. So by 1962, we're reaching the tail end of the production code heyday. After nearly 30 years as the law of Hollywood, it would be skirted with increasing cleverness throughout the early 60s and would ultimately be abandoned by the end of that decade, making way for greedy male auteurs of the 70s. And if you want to talk about a class of directors that really loved to brutalize women, well, that's more time than we have here. But 1962 doesn't just see the release of Kubrick's Lolita. It's also the year the original version of Cape Fear is released, a movie that really pushes the production code to its absolute limits. Robert Mitchum's character, Max Cady, a convicted rapist, swears to take revenge on the lawyer who landed him in prison, and there is an especially vicious scene where he clearly intends to rape the lawyer's teenage daughter, Nancy. It's terrifying, and director J. Lee Thompson, fought to keep this scene in the movie. When Cape Fear was remade by Martin Scorsese in the early 90s, the scene appears completely differently. While it's clear that Katie still intends to rape Nancy, this time she appears to be turned on by it, and she kisses him consensually with an open mouth. It's yet another coincidence that's shared with Lolita. The 90s update of the 60s adaptation is... You know what? We're still in the 1960s. Let's stay focused. Stanley Kubrick, what say you? There is demonstrable proof that it was possible, even in a flawed way, to present a predator as a predator in Hollywood movies in 1962, if we're using Cape Fear as an example. You just didn't. Now that we have an idea of the media landscape the Kubrick-Harris-Lolita is being released into, what are we working with here? I want to give you a quick summary of what happens in the movie to give you an idea of exactly how much is changed from the book. It's a lot, a lot changes.
1: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of
5: perfect home sweet home.
3: The movie starts on a long credit sequence where Humbert paints Lolita's toenails, arguably the most erotic scene in the entire movie. Setting the precedent for many adaptations to come, this movie starts at the end of the book. Humbert shows up to Quilty's mansion to murder him. Humbert again is played by James Mason, and Quilty is played by Peter Sellers, who will later be famous for being in movies like Doctor Strangelove and the Pink Panther series. And Peter Sellers is improvising a whole lot in this movie.
7: And so are you and I tonight. She's mine, yours.
3: So Quilty dies, and we flash back to four years earlier. Now, this adaptation does not take place in 1947. It seems to be taking place closer to 1957 based on context clues we get. And speaking of context, here's the only context we get for who Humbert Humbert is.
6: I decided to spend a peaceful summer in the attractive resort town of Ramsdale
3: no Annabelle, no sanatorium, no Valeria, no psychologist John Ray Jr., no letting us know that the protagonist is well aware that he is a pedophile. Another thing I find interesting is that they use the word nymphette very early in the movie, but never define it. Then we go straight to the Hayes household where Shelley Winters as Charlotte Hayes is playing this character to the comedic hilt. As in the book, Humbert sees Lolita for the first time. And there is Sue Lyon Sueon in a bikini, gazing at him over dark sunglasses. Lolita is aged up to be 14 years old in this adaptation. Sue Lyon is 15 at the time of shooting, and she's been styled to look closer to 17. There's a lot of wordplay in this movie, which Nabokov is famous for, but this wordplay is gross.
2: What was the decisive factor? Uh, my garden?
6: <sighs> Since we're screwed. Charity prize.
3: Oh. Humbert spends his time in Ramsdale watching Lolita. There's a short scene where he grabs Lolita's hand during a movie, ogles her hula hooping and watches her go on a date with some kid named Kenny at a local dance. Claire Quilty is also at this party, although in this version he is a TV writer who has apparently hooked up with Charlotte in the past. Later that night, Lolita goes to a sleepover, which means Charlotte gets Humbert alone, and Humbert tries to convince Charlotte that she needs to keep Lolita on a shorter leash. Now,
6: I don't think you realize that she's beginning to grow
3: up. Charlotte is in the middle of coming onto Humbert strong when Lolita gets home, which annoys Charlotte. They have this short. Exchange when Humbert is out of the room.
2: Do you have a good time dancing with Claire Quilty? Of course. Uh, He's a very erudite gentleman. Yeah, I know. All the girls are crazy about him, too.
3: And after Lolita goes upstairs, Charlotte pitches a fit.
0: Hey, is it my fault if I feel young? Why should my child resent it? You don't resent it, do you?
3: And this is the start of another popular adaptation trope, making Charlotte completely unstable and interpreting the hysteria that Humbert describes in the book as simply what happens. Lolita and Humbert talk alone for the first time, and guess which author they read?
6: The divine Edgar.
2: Who's the divine Edgar? Edgar
6: who? Edgar Allan Pearl, of course. Mm.
3: Then she feeds him a piece of ham. As in the book, Lolita is then sent to camp. She hugs him before leaving instead of the book's kiss. And as in the book, Humbert receives Charlotte's confession of love. He finds it hilarious.
6: that you want me as much as I do you? As a lifelong mate.
3: And so they get married. Charlotte is insecure in his affections and during one night says she will kill herself if Humbert doesn't believe in God and takes out a gun. Then they make out while Humbert stares at a framed picture of Lolita. Humbert's blatant sexism towards his new wife is captured pretty cleanly here.
6: Even in the most harmonious household such as ours, not all the decisions are taken by the female.
3: Then while she's out of the room, Humbert loads her gun and fantasizes about shooting her and framing it as an accident, calling it the perfect murder, but then chickens out. And Humbert's voiceover is used pretty sparingly throughout this movie, but this is one of the only times it sounds like the voiceover is addressing a jury or an audience. What do you know, folks?
6: I just couldn't make myself do it.
3: Charlotte finds his journals, is horrified what he's written about her daughter, and then, unlike the book, she yells at her dead husband's ashes.
2: You were the soul of integrity. How did we produce such a little beast?
3: She leaves, is hit by a car, and is killed. Another deviation from the book, this blow of her death is softened for some reason when Humbert learns that she didn't have long to live anyways, and that her kidneys were failing. Humbert then picks up Lolita at Camp Climax and tells her that her mother is sick on the way to the Enchanted Hunters Hotel, where Quilty is there with Vivian Darkbloom, and he's talking to his secretary about their kinky sex life for some reason when Humbert and Lolita arrive. They go up to the one-bed hotel room. Lolita lays, kicking her legs sleepover style, and this exchange happens.
1: Two people
6: sharing one room inevitably enter into a kind of... um...
2: How shall I say? Aren't you going to go down and see about the cut?
3: Now you might remember from when we discussed the book that this is ordinarily where Dolores says the line. It's called incest. This adaptation avoids the idea of drugging women altogether, both Charlotte and Lolita, but Humbert still goes downstairs to the hotel lobby and unknowingly has a discussion with Quilty. Again, a lot of Peter Sellers improvising here.
4: She was really lovely. I wish I had a lovely, pretty tall, lovely little girl like that. I mean, well, that, that's my daughter.
3: This scene is too long. Humbert then goes back up to the hotel room, almost doesn't bring in the cot the hotel has provided for him, but then decides to And there's a long physical comedy scene where the hotel employee and Humbert try to set the cot up without waking Lolita. Now, if you remember, this is a significant deviation from the book, as this next morning at the Enchanted Hunter's Hotel is when Humbert first rapes Dolores. In the movie, the physical intimacy only gets as close as them touching hands and twirling hair. Lolita talks about a fun game she learned at camp, and they get pretty close to towing the 1962 production code line here.
2: I I learned some real games in camp one in particularly was fun well i played it with charlie you sure you can't guess what game i'm talking about
3: she then whispers the answer to him and his eyes bug out
2: you mean you'd ever played that game when you were a kid
3: here she laughs leans over to him on his cot and we fade to black they hit the road there's no expression of physical pain from lolita as there is in the book and humbert tells her that her mother is dead That night at the next hotel, Lolita weeps from the other room. She says this to Humbert.
2: Promise you'll never leave me. I don't want to ever be in one of those horrible
7: places for juvenile delinquents.
3: We then flash forward to Beardsley several months later, as Humbert is already in his second semester of teaching. Humbert is painting Lolita's nails and grills her about what she's doing in her personal life, and it's clear to us that he's been following her around. He mentions one of her friends, and we get this.
6: So well now, for a change, I'm going to ask you something about Michelle.
4: <laughs> you can't have her. She belongs to a Marine.
3: And she asks him if she can be in the school play, written by Quilty and Vivian Darkbloom. And for some reason, Humbert doesn't remember that he definitely knows who these people are. Then, Dr. Zempf arrives, and it's Quilty in disguise doing a Dr. Freud cosplay, I think. But it really is just Peter Sellers doing an accent.
7: We are wondering, uh, has uh, anybody uh, instructed Lolita in the fix of life?
3: It ends with Quilty in Disguise convincing Humbert to let Lolita do the play. So Lolita is in the play and Humbert attends. Back at home, Humbert and Lolita have a blowout argument and Humbert ends the discussion by suggesting they leave Beardsley. Lolita is resistant and finally says how she really feels about him.
6: I hate you! I hate you! you!
3: They leave again lolita doesn't feel well and she goes to the hospital when back at the hotel humbert gets another mysterious call from quilty even though he still somehow doesn't know it's quilty then humbert goes to pick lolita up and finds out she's already left with her quote unquote uncle flash 2 lolita writes humbert the letter asking for money saying she's married and pregnant humbert turns up at the house and there's lolita she and dick aren't as poor as they are in the book and she starts this scene by apologizing to him.
2: Fine thing me dropping out of sight for so long and then writing you for
0: a handout.
3: Humbert insists on knowing who took Lolita away, and she admits it was Quilty, saying the following.
0: He wasn't like you and me. He wasn't a normal person. He was a genius
3: she says she had a crush on him and he took on a number of disguises to help her escape and instead of saying she was asked to do pornography as she does in the book the movies lolita says that he had a bunch of weird friends
6: what kind of weird friends
0: weird painters nudists writers weightlifters
3: he gives her the money and we find out at the end that humbert has died of coronary thrombosis but lolita lives the end And I really do think that this last choice is kind of a a beautiful deviation from Dolores's death during childbirth in the book, strictly on a cathartic level, because in this movie, the survivor of all of this abuse actually survives. I, I was actually really touched by this. Having her survive at the end is a really heartening message for survivors who are watching the movie. But of course, Kubrick did not make this movie for survivors of abuse. He made it for men. Any Nabokov scholar, including Nabokov himself, will admit that his talents did not always translate to scripts. In fact, a lot of what he wrote in the screenplay would have been pretty impossible to translate to a scene at all. But he wasn't a total novice like he claimed. Nabokov had written a number of plays and had been in talks to write Hollywood screenplays in the past. So this script is far from perfect, but reading through his published Lolita screenplay was really interesting. He includes several key elements from the book that are critical to understanding who Humbert is. The psychologist John Ray Jr. contextualizing Humbert as a clear-cut child sex abuser, the story of Annabelle and Humbert's childhood fixation and glorification of a young girl. There's even an entire scene at the beginning taking place at a sanatorium where Humbert frankly discusses his obsession with underage girls with the psychologist John Ray and acknowledges it as the serious issue it is. Maybe my favorite choice he makes in the entire screenplay is Nabokov has Humbert's voiceover kind of instruct the director from the very beginning of the movie. So Humbert's voiceover will say, give me a shot of two hands being held, and then we'll cut to that shot. He'll ask for a shot of the French Riviera, and that shot will appear. And it's one of the more elegant attempts ever made at making it clear that Humbert is the person pulling the strings here. And it's not just the omniscient no-name narrator that we're used to. There is no protracted, quilty disguises. Humbert is actually a lot more unlikable and a lot less debonair. And there's more focus on the road trip. One of my favorite additions is a short scene where Humbert and Lolita run into Vladimir Nabokov himself. Nabokov is like catching butterflies on the side of the road. And it's really funny. I was surprised to read that a lot of the issues and perpetuating of false ideas about child abuse and framing Lolita as temptress are very rooted in what Nabokov writes in the adaptation of his own work. So while our knowledge of what his discussions with Kubrick and Harris about adaptation are are very limited, we do know that Nabokov was resistant to having a real underage actor play the role of Lolita, and that by the time he was writing the screenplay, it had been decided that Lolita was going to be aged up to 14. So Nabokov's script includes a lot of scenes between Humbert and Lolita, but the scenes taking place earlier in the movie, in Ramsdale in particular, lean more heavily on making Lolita seem flirtatious, teasing, in a way that his book leaves extremely ambiguous. So instead of letting the viewer wonder how much Humbert is projecting onto Lolita's behavior, the script makes it clear that she is flirting with him the entire time, and Humbert's voiceover interjects into the script less and less as the movie goes on, and there are fewer and fewer reminders that this account is not to be taken at face value. The physical assaults on Lolita are implied in of script, and are unsurprisingly scaled back considerably in an attempt to appease the code. But again, in doing so, Nabokov takes the route of making this more of a seduction that she's very much in on and a consenting participant within. These are issues that are exploited and turned up to an 11 in future adaptations, and Kubrick certainly would have been wise to include a lot of the necessary context that Nabokov includes. But even if Nabokov's published script had been made to the letter, there is still a fair amount of blame. And and asking for it put on Lolita and of course we have little to no clue what he included in his six-hour draft of the script and after seeing the movie in 1962 Nabokov grows less kind to Kubrick and Harris's adaptation of his script over time and by the 1970s he referred to the movie like this
4: a scenic drive is perceived by the horizontal passenger of an ambulance
3: So, yeah, I I would say that even in Nabokov's script, there's not much of the book's Dolores Hayes to be found. The culture was certainly the one to shape Lolita as a sex icon, but Nabokov is not pushing very hard back in this screenplay. So while there is no doubt that the advertising surrounding Lolita is one of the largest issues with how Dolores the character became corrupted in the minds of the general public, but it doesn't let this movie all the way off the hook. For example, The cinematography of Kubrick's Lolita was done by Oswald Morris. Morris is a legend in the field. His cinematography work spans from Lolita, to Oliver, to Fiddler on the Roof, to the great Muppet caper. What's up? He he definitely knows what he's doing. And again, the 1962 Lolita is certainly not the worst offender of framing the character of Dolores Hayes. Hands down, that goes to the Vaseline lens used in the 1997 version. but some choices are worth pointing out here. Also worth mentioning is that Kubrick was a very hands-on director who edited his own films, so he is very involved in these choices as well. Generally, the writing and cinematography of a movie gel together. That is to say, the cinematography serves as a way of making the writing clearer and serves as being complementary. This isn't a hard and fast rule and doing so doesn't make a movie good or bad, but it is common. In some cases though, the script and the cinematography of a movie seem to be saying something slightly different. A great example of this is, and bear with me, Michael Bay's first Transformers movie in 2007, in which a lot of pretty innocuous dialogue said by Megan Fox's character is directly at odds with the camera's fixation on her body when she is saying the words. Lindsay Ellis has a wonderful video series on YouTube on this exact subject, so listen to this line of dialogue from Megan Fox's character, Michaela.
4: Looks like your uh, your distributor cap's a little loose.
6: Yeah, how'd you know that?
5: Uh, my dad, he was a he was a real grease monkey. He taught me all about this. I could take it all apart, clean it, put it back together.
3: Now, just hearing it, that's not a hypersexual line of dialogue. But how do people generally remember that character? as being hypersexual. One of the reasons that is, is likely because for that entire line, the camera is slowly panning over her body. It's just like male gaze 101 so as a viewer we are actively encouraged by the camera to sexualize her even though the character herself is not inviting that and the cultural takeaway as it was with megan fox at this time seems to hold an actor or character accountable for how a director or cinematographer is encouraging us to look at her it's Fucked. And Kubrick's Lolita has small whiffs of this. tame by comparison, but worth noting. Two examples that come to mind are Lolita's introduction. She is gazing at Humbert in her bikini, posed very deliberately like a centerfold, looking directly at him, Another image is Lolita laying on the bed at the Enchanted Hunters Hotel, kicking her legs while teasing him about his clear desire for her. She's even kicking her shoes off seductively, and we see a nervous Humbert shot from over her legs. It's certainly less egregious than future adaptations, but the camera does frame her as it would a romantic interest in a movie. She's framed the same way that a consenting adult female star would be. The camera is giving you permission to look at her, the way Humbert Humbert does. Now, if you're thinking like, Jamie, how else would they have framed it? Well, contrast this with the way that the camera treats Lolita when she's 17 and pregnant. It is very static. It seems pretty uninterested in her physically. Nabokov even adds in the book what doubles as cinematic shorthand for undesirable woman by throwing a pair of glasses onto her, like never been kissed style. The closer Lolita gets to becoming a legal adult, the less the camera sexualizes her. Now for all the Kubrick fans that are maybe possibly very mad at me right now, this movie does have some unique strengths. I think it succeeds in a way that many of the adaptations don't, By making the on-screen relationship between Humbert and Lolita pretty stiff and stilted, and it's clear that it's difficult for them to connect because she is a preteen and he is a 50-year-old English professor. And although Lolita is aged up and is definitely styled to be closer to college age than middle school, their age difference and worldview are clearly in extreme conflict and Humbert comes off as much more of a stiff, uncomfortable older guy than the romantic hero Humbert that he presents himself as in the book's pages. Now, of course, this compliment can kind of fall apart when you consider that the movie sort of wants you to believe that they are an odd couple. And because movies at this time can't show or tell much of anything regarding Humbert's criminality, he is still humanized in the process. It's, again, the comedy of manners more than anything else. We get a lot more dialogue with Lolita here, and Sue Lyon really makes a meal of what she's given. But ultimately, this movie does miss the point yes due to the production code to an extent but also willfully misses the point prioritizing peter seller's comedy monologues that feel like they belong in literally any other movie it actually reminds me of like judd apatow movies from the mid-2000s where it's clear that he just won't tell his actors to stop talking and james mason actually agrees with me here he commented rather snarkily at the time this movie was released the following
5: Kubrick was so
1: besotted with the genius of Peter Sellers that he never seemed to have enough of him.
3: Yeah, James Mason went off. And in the final sinister commonality with its literary predecessor, that was a lot of fancy words in a row, a lot of the reviews of Kubrick's 1962 Lolita missed the point of why the movie doesn't seem to work.
4: Wind up the Lolita doll and it goes to Hollywood and commits nymphanticide. and closed with, Lolita is the saddest and most important victim of the current reckless adaptation fad. It's a film about this poor young English guy who's being given the runaround by this sly young broad.
3: Sue Lyon makes an auspicious film debut as the deceitful child woman who's just as soon go to a movie as Romp in the Hay.
6: The distinction is fine, we will grant you, but she is definitely not a quote-unquote Nym As played by Sue Lyon, a newcomer, she reminds one of Carol Baker's baby doll. Right away, this removes the factor of perverted desire that is in the book and renders the passion of the hero more normal and understandable. It also renders the drama more in line with the others we have seen, Older men have often pined for younger females.
3: Sue Lyon is perhaps a little less than enough, but not because she looks 17. Have the reviewers looked at the schoolgirls of America lately? The classmates of my 14-year-old daughter are not merely nubile. Some of them look badly used. Pauline Kale That said, Kubrick and Harris's voices are far louder than the source material in the finished product and Kubrick, like Nabokov, was not known for his strength in writing and representing female characters. Unlike Nabokov, Kubrick worked in a deeply collaborative medium, and this general mistreatment of some of his female stars extended off the page and the celluloid and caused very real harm to a number of women who worked with him. So to examine this and to where Lolita falls into his canon, I got to speak with James Fenwick, one of the leading living Kubrick scholars who has gotten personal access to Kubrick's archives and is releasing a new book called Stanley Kubrick Produces on December 18th, 2020. I was really excited to find, like Nabokov scholars I spoke with, how open he was to examining his subjects' less savory aspects. I also want to mention that this interview was recorded about a month before the story regarding James Harris's treatment of Sue Lyon was broken. Here's a little bit of our conversation. So this adaptation scales Lolita's role back and enhances Charlotte's presence. And it seems like Lolita is styled and written to seem like a consenting participant, which isn't possible. But this movie seems to appear that it feels that it is and that's definitely like a far cry from the book
7: i mean with the charlotte hayes one i always feel it's kind of very vindictive what kubrick does to that character she's made to be almost kind of a villain and you know kind of the shrieking voice and and the way that that's it's really kind of a funny scene but at the same time i find it really dark where after charlotte is killed in the street you know the neighbors think that he's really depressed but secretly he's absolutely relieved to be rid of charlotte hayes Mm -hmm. And I think it was kind of of similarly with the scaling back of the kind of, you know, the role of Lolita herself. It almost speaks to the way that Kubrick likes to kind of position his films about men. His films are masculine films, Okay, Mm -hmm. In the book, you kind of start to kind of feel sympathy for Lolita. You kind of, you know, hear her kind of thought processes and the way that she's kind of been treated. In the film, that just doesn't happen. And I think it is all about bringing to the fore kind of the male characters... And always kind of reducing the women uh, to kind of, um, you know, props for the narrative. And with kind of Lolita, you never really do kind of get a sense that she she has any kind of emotion whatsoever. And I think that is just part and parcel of kind of the way that Kubrick, you know, as a kind of creative uh, visionary, that is the way that he approached his uh, kind of films generally. And in kind of in the archive, you can see kind of examples of this you know, kind of early scripts that he was writing in the 1950s that are very similar in tone Mm -hmm. uh, to Lolita, is often kind of very vindictive uh, to female characters. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, punishes them, uh, kind of enacts kind of really cruel kind of episodes upon these women. You know, with it being so controversial... And as you kind of said there about kind of making Lolita herself a much more kind of adult character, kind of, you know, up in the age and so forth. I think that is all all the kind of, again, part of the reason why you get this kind of the changes to the the film that, you know, comparing it to the novel. And it is because you've kind of got to get it past the production code. You've kind of got to, you know, ensure that it is acceptable to audiences. Um, And I think kind of that is one of the ways of kind of achieving that.
3: Um, and, and then speaking to the casting of Lolita, I mean, I, I've heard different accounts of the casting and, and similar to Humbert, a lot of young women passed it over and, and didn't want to get anywhere near it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm curious about what you know, uh, about, um, her casting.
7: Well, I mean, they kind of, uh, a range of, uh, people to kind of, you know, uh, take on the role i think it did come down very much to kind of the, the idea of the lolita image um, now one thing to say with kind of kubrick when it comes to casting he um oh how do i put it <laughs> <laughs> he had certain kind of tendencies he had a certain image of what a woman should look like he was sexist in terms of his kind of professional approach to casting mm-hmm. um, and i think that is very much the way that you know he approached kind of Lolita as he did with other films. He would make notes about the physical appearance of an actress rather than think about can they actually act. It was always about appearance. And I think that is essentially what kind of sold uh, kind of, uh, you know, Sue Lyon casting. So it was very much about does this fit this image of this kind of girl that I have in my head rather than anything else, essentially. I also, I also think with the treatment of Sue Lyon, when you look at correspondence, because she was eventually contracted mm-hmm. to uh, Harris Cooper Pictures and to Seren Arts, and she was treated essentially as an object, again, uh, kind of, this is somebody that we now own, let's decide what kind of projects we're going to put her in. Um, she had no kind of uh, agency, essentially, at that time to kind of, up to the age, and therefore... <laughs> In the publicity, this is an '18. Uh, you kind of, sorry, next is You're going to kind of, you know, you want as an audience, you want to see if Humbert is going to have sex with Lolita. That's the entire point of this film. And so, in all of the publicity, not just the Bert Stern photo photographs, uh, kind of the sexuality and the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of adult image of Sue Lyon was completely exploited to the max.
3: Any insight of. You know who who was looking out for her and she she describes having a wonderful friendship with james mason but a slightly more complicated one with kubrick where she describes at times being afraid of him um and intimidated and i mean you know you know way better than i do that that seems to be kind of a, a trend in how kubrick relates to actresses throughout his career so yeah i, I yeah. just want to talk about that.
7: Uh-huh. I imagine kind of the relationship being very similar to the one with kind of Shelley Duvall, kind of The Shining, Kubrick had a job to do. He needed to get performance out of someone and he would kind of behave in whatever way necessary to kind of elicit that performance. From my own experience, again, going through the kind of Kubrick archive and kind of talking to people, you often kind of get different kind of conflicting accounts. If you talk to the Kubrick family, they always kind of defend Kubrick and say, yep, he's kind of an artist, a genius, you know, uh, he's kind of allowed to do whatever he wants. But when you start to look at other kind of evidence, you just have to kind of question his behavior Mm. and the way that he was treating someone, someone particularly as kind of as young as Sue Lyon was, and the way that she perhaps was susceptible and kind of, you know, susceptible to kind of manipulation, um, particularly when you kind of think about the subject matter of the film as well. You know, this is not necessarily a nice way that she was treated by all these kind of men in powerful positions, correspondence between Kubrick. They both kind of start suggesting, how can we exploit Line to the max? We've got her on contract. We need to use her and kind of, you know, get as much publicity out of her as possible. And constantly she's kind of reduced to the Lolita image. That's all she's about. It's not somebody that's kind of, you know, that should be respected. This is somebody that we now essentially own. She's kind of on our payroll. Uh, how can we go about now using her? So for me, there's always that uncomfortable kind of aspect to the way that uh, Kubrick did uh, kind of use and, and treat Sue Lyon. I think
3: almost two months after our first interview, following the story detailing the allegations of James Harris's sexual abuse of Sue Lyon, James Fenwick and I caught up again. And preparing for this interview was interesting because listening back to our first talk, I was kind of taken aback because. Based on all of the press that I had read up till that point, Harris had very much been characterized as an ally to Lyon until a reporter like Sarah Weinman took a closer look and asked the right people the right questions. So the tone of my second conversation with James Fenwick was very different. Here's a little bit of that.
7: Yeah, I mean, I saw the story only a couple of weeks ago. And for me, it wasn't a surprise as such, by which I mean, kind of, I was already kind of aware of the stories from the early 1960s in the Washington Post. You know, I mean, it almost kind of, uh, in a weird way, the film is an allegory of the kind of production itself. And I find that dynamic now, it, you know, it, it, it can't be unseen. Again, you know, people clearly within Hollywood knew that there were rumors. That's the, the one thing that I think is kind of important. Rumors in the sense of, you know, uh, the friendship and the closeness of James B. Harris and Sue Lyon, not suggesting that there was kind of um, an outright allegation at the time that he was sleeping with her, but, you know, this suggestion that, oh, Sue Lyon, you might want to kind of uh, one day marry James B. Harris. Mm. Um, I think perhaps now for me, uh, you know, it, it it reframes the whole film. It reframes the way that we view that film. Um, it reframes, I think, the relationship uh, between kind of powerful producers, as I said a, a bit back, and child stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is the bigger issue here, really, actually. You know?
5: yeah,
7: um, And also yeah. the issue with the fact that, again, Sue Lyon's voice is not part of this. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, the, the moments that she ever has talked about stuff, it's kind of been ignored. The example I always use, for instance, is this official Stanley Kubrick exhibition and there's one letter in that exhibition, and it's a ne- kind of a letter that almost exonerates anyone, with any responsibility for the way that her life and career panned out, kind of saying, thank you Stanley, you know, you did wonders for me, I loved it, et cetera, et cetera. Actually kind of forgetting the few moments where she said that Lolita damaged her, that that kind of was the start of the kind of downfall of her own personal life.
3: And James Fenwick and I will be discussing this more at length in an episode about the actors who played Lolita. Thank you so much to him. So as we discussed in the interview, Kubrick proved himself famously antagonistic and cruel towards many of his female stars. But Kubrick's willingness to torture his female stars extends far beyond Sue Lyon. Shelley Winters, who played Charlotte Hayes in the movie, had had a bad relationship with Kubrick as well that almost resulted in him firing her in the middle of a take. The most famous example, as you might know already, is Shelley Duvall in The Shining, who Kubrick prided himself on antagonizing in order to get a heightened performance from her. And he actively encouraged his crew to ignore her clear distress. There is literally footage of this. He refused to encourage or praise her. He wouldn't tell her what was gonna happen before very violent shots. And she said later that she was crying 12 hours a day while Kubrick and Jack Nicholson were hanging out and playing chess. Here's how Nicholson and Kubrick Talked on set. <laughs> mm.
1: Very good, Jack. Excellent. Right. Check
3: the- and here is Kubrick talking to Duval. Look
1: at this.
2: I pulled all my hair. I pulled hunks of hair out on the windowsill,
6: On the back got caught.
1: Major Hunks sure. of hair. Oh,
7: look. Okay. I <laughs> well, don't sympathize with Shelly.
3: And as we talked about with Griffith and Hitchcock and Chaplin, there was a clear precedent for this behavior. And while I can't stand that the Kubrick estate still defends his doing this, he certainly had no reason to believe the culture he worked within would ever have a problem with it. And he was right by and large, he was rewarded for this type of behavior up until very recently. And this is not at all unusual for male auteurs. It's it's a discussion that's been had at length and is continuing to be had throughout the Me Too movement. But since Kubrick, up until the last few years, have allowed a number of abuses to take place in the name of art. Think Gaspar No, Lars von Trier, James Toback, Woody Allen, David O. Russell. And it hits especially ironically in the case of Lolita, because Humbert Humbert, while committing abuses against an adolescent girl, uses this same bullshit artist argument to attempt to get away with the abuse of Dolores Hayes. He is a poet. He is an artist. Poets don't kill. Nabokov, the novelist, knows this argument is bullshit. The culture Lolita the book is released into, not entirely, but in no small part, allows Humbert to get away with it by declaring it the greatest love story of all time. The Hollywood Stanley Kubrick worked inside of let him get away with mistreating the women he worked with because he argued that the art demanded he do so. We let James B. Harris, according to these allegations from October 2020, get away with it. We let Poe get away with it. We let Chaplin get away with it. We let Lewis Carroll get away with it. And in many cases, we still are. Ultimately, Kubrick's Alita has it a number of different ways and is trying to claim a number of different cakes. Sue Lyon embodies closer to the child woman that Marilyn Monroe had popularized instead of a child being strategically and falsely presented as a woman by a predatory, unreliable narrator. It's unfortunately not that difficult to see why this happened. After all, the male directors, writers, and producers served as real-life predators at times, nearly always projecting a false narrative about their female stars whose lives were rigidly controlled by them. And in missing the point of the book Lolita entirely, knowing the history of Kubrick's adaptation almost serves to reinforce the novel's ideas even more. So. It is my deep displeasure to tell you that Stanley Kubrick's 1962 adaptation of Lolita is possibly the best one that currently exists, given that I have just spent over an hour unpacking why it has little to nothing to do with the message behind the source text. So I would like to close this episode with Sue Lyon. First, a quote from her at 15 during the relentless promotion of this movie. We know now that this is very well the same time that her producer is having sex with her on this press tour, while remaining in complete control of her career.
2: Well, I have a five-year contract, I have a seven-year contract with Harris Kubrick. There will be five years left. And they make the decisions from now on. Mr. Harris is reading properties now, looking for something for me to do. And when he finds it, then we'll be making another picture.
7: Have you any special wishes? What
2: would I have you like many. to play?
3: And then her, later, reflecting on this experience in the 1980s.
2: They felt that they were going to build a star and in the fashion of the old studios uh, create an image and it would go on for there. But after they realized that and understood my motivation for doing the film and also I pointed out to them, I said, you know, you've made a tremendous amount of money off of me. And I think you owe me the respect to be who I am. I was once on a television show, a talk show. My brother had just died two days before that. The interviewer opens his show by saying, and now I was 16 years old. He said, did your brother kill himself because you played Lolita? I didn't say a thing. I got up and I walked up.
3: So by all accounts, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita is a failure and continues the domino effect of the act of harm surrounding the story's legacy. Next week, we're going to talk about what that act of harm entails and what some have done to combat it. A discussion about abuse, the abductions that inspired the story, how Freud fucked us all over, and one psychology professor's argument for reclaiming Lolita on behalf of survivors next week on Lolita Podcast. This has been a production of iHeartRadio. My name's Jamie Loftus. I write and host the show. My producers are the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Beth Ann Makaluso, and Jack O'Brien. My editor is the amazing Isaac Taylor. Additional research and transcription work from Ben Loftus, music hits by Zoe Blade, and our theme is from Brad Dickert. Thank you so much to my guest voices on this episode as well, Robert Evans as Vladimir Nabokov, Anna Hosnier, Shireen Lani Yunus, Grace Thomas, and Miles Brandt. We'll see you next week.